Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak to Jason Lewis about his book, The War for Fundraising Talent. What he's seen as a trainer and a fundraiser that make positive and negative fundraising cultures and what fundraisers and the charities they work for can do to bring about fundraising success. So, without further ado, here is Jason Lewis. Jason Lewis, author, fundraiser and trainer. Hello Jason. Hi, how are you doing Sam? Good to, good to be with you today. Brilliant, thank you for being on the show. Would you start by telling our listeners who you are and what led you to found Lewis Fundraising? Yes, yeah, Sam, so I have been in fundraising. I'm sort of one of those, um, I consider myself maybe the sort of one of the last of the generation of sort of backdoor fundraisers. We come into the nonprofit sector uh, for other reasons. And um, anyone my age and older is, is sort of among those who generally describe ourselves as having come through the back door or um, happened upon it, didn't know what fundraising was or fundraising wasn't all that legitimate when we entered into the field. And, um, and, uh, and so now after, after doing that for 15 years, I've spent the last five years um, consulting and, um, and focus sort of on what I call the messy adolescence. I think fundraising is sort of in its messy adolescence yeah. um, as a profession, and um, which is an interesting place for it to be because I think a lot of us think that it's grown up, and it ha- I don't think it has. <laughs> and, um, and you've got a lot of young people coming into it with a lot of different perspectives and a, um, a little more confidence um, in what it is they're doing. And, um, and so I sort of see myself right there in the middle sort of bridging that and um, just published a book about a year ago called The War for Fundraising Talent. It's doing really well selling here in the U.S. and also selling pretty well in the U.K. and Canada and Australia and a couple other places. And what was the aim of your book, The War for Fundraising Talent? Is it to help fundraisers in different countries to become better at fundraising or is it broader than that? I think... um, yeah, so that um, it's not it's not it's not the traditional definition. I don't I, I I use the term the war for fundraising talent isn't the notion of uh, sort of the traditional view of the, sort of the talent wars, which is that of you know who gets to hire Jason or who gets to hire Sam and and why why we want to hire one over one of us over the other. But it's more of an ideological war, um, sort of what I see sort of constantly brewing in the nonprofit sector of, of how fundraising really works. And consequently, if you've got your head head on straight about how fundraising really works, you generally end up with the better fundraising talent is, is kind of the argument that I'm making. And um, I really make a strong case that essentially the sector, the large majority of the sector that is losing that war is, um, is addicted to a very sh- cheap and shallow form of fundraising that's oftentimes characterized by what I call arm's length fundraising. And so they adopt a set of practices um, that generally maintain an arm's length relationship with the donor. Consequently, neither the donor nor the um, neither the donor nor the fundraiser are experiencing much of a meaningful relationship, and consequently, they don't enjoy the experience very much. And so the so the donor is constantly in a in a turning over sort of way, and, and similarly the uh, the fundraiser is as well. And so we have to create we have to create organizational environments where fundraising professionals and their donors 
those two on each each side of that charitable exchange actually enjoy what it is is going on. Um, and so most of my consulting work, Sam, is working with organizations, both large and small, to help them create that that organizational design. Um, I think we've got some um, old industrial style. Um, you know, we've got we've got we've got organizational cultures that are trying to be highly predictable and very controlled and all those sorts of things. And it doesn't make for healthy environments for relationships to flourish. And so, but it sustains that unhealthy culture that I'm describing. You talk about that unhealthy culture. Are the symptoms of that having a lack of creativity in the workplace or leadership really wanting to keep things as they are and doing what have always been done before, what's causing this arm's length fundraising culture? I don't think it's terribly deliberate. If you, you know, a few minutes ago I said, one of the things I'm constantly saying, and every time I'm given a platform, I, this is usually one of the first things, I, it's this notion of being in a messy adolescence. So the fundraising profession has not been a, a quote unquote, you know, legitimate career path. It hasn't been a profession but you know, maybe we're maybe two generations in, if you will. Um, the baby boomers can be, you know, credited for largely sort of bringing the profession to where it's where it is, and they've admirably bought, brought it through its infancy and its childhood. And now those of us who are a little younger are sort of picking up that torch and carrying it a little further. Um, and so I don't know that fundraising has figured out. I think we're stuck between. You know, are we are we frontline salespeople or are we marketers and PR people or something in the middle? And what domain do we belong in and stuff? And so, any question that we could ask of ourselves is sort of just that. You know, it's that identity crisis and those big big questions that you know a, my 15 year old son is asking about who he is and why he fits in the world and um, you know, and at times he seems brilliant and he knows exactly what's going on. And at other times he's acting like his 10 year old sister. Um, and so we're just sort of in this messy place. And, um, and consequently, I think we have to, we have to afford ourselves that learning opportunity. You know, one of the things that I think in fundraising, I keep hearing is when is fundraising going to be disrupted? Uh, disruptive is sort of that, you know, it's that, it's that term that everybody thinks that, um, every industry is entitled to, but in, in reality, fundraising hasn't been around long enough. We haven't been established long enough to be disrupted. We're not we're not entitled to disruption because we haven't we haven't grown up. Um, there's a reason why Uber is sort of considered to be a very disruptive technology for the taxi industry because the taxi industry has been around for for you know forever. Um, fundraising at best just needs to sort of figure out where it fits in the world and what do our people look like and what is it that we're actually doing from day to day. Um, the tools, methods, resources that we use, who we hire, all of those things I don't think we've necessarily completely figured out. And is that the starting point, do you think, with young people coming into the sector? Is there a risk that they're being taught bad habits or bad viewpoints on fundraising and potentially other aspects of a charity's day-to-day -day work? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I would not be, so I, 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 I'm, um, I would not want to be in consulting if I was 10 to 15 years older right now. I, I don't admire, I don't admire my 
um, more senior consulting peers because I do think that they're challenged with a sort of an understanding of the profession that we've already sort of gotten past. I think there's a lot of fundraising professionals, a lot of people who are advising sort of the sector right now on how fundraising works that still carry around sort of an identity crisis. Um, and um, an identity crisis is sort of very characteristic of your childhood, but it's not something that we necessarily struggle so much with once we move into our adolescence. When we move into our adolescence, we want to we sort of want to know how we fit in the world. And so we, we've sort of gotten beyond the fact that that we that we're legitimate. Um, and um, and now and now we want to know what it is we're supposed to be doing. And I think that's what so when I talk to a young person, so when I talk to a young person, let's say I'm talking to a 28, 29, 30 year old in Philadelphia at a large health charity or something. Um, uh, she, she's oftentimes very confident in introducing herself as a fundraiser, um, whereas her whereas her um, someone who's 10 or 20 years older than her is not near. They, they've never gotten comfortable with introducing themselves as a fundraiser. And I don't know that they ever will because they had to come through that sort of period of growth in as a profession that um, introducing yourself as a fundraiser was not um, they hesitate. They stop, you know, it was that was never something they would do. They shied away. From, they felt they feel they feel like the uh, the idea of a, of a calling themselves a fundraiser is no differently than being a used car salesman or something. So it's negatively loaded in their minds, that term fundraiser. Yeah. And so I think you've got a lot of people in the sector. And I think it, I think you see this even in the people who are le leading, sort of leading the charge and in, in giving wisdom to the sector. I think they're still carrying around some of that. That, that identity crisis that I think we're sort of beyond. It's an interesting point. I've thought about this um, a lot recently, actually. I've been asked in the past uh, what I do, and I've often said that I'm a f in fundraising, but recently I've started to say I work for an organization that does, and then talk about the cause, as I've wanted to draw attention to the cause and the work that we do. And I suppose there's a part of me as well that didn't want to be perceived as solely asking for money especially if it's conversation with in my personal life with my neighbor or someone like this um so in work situations i wonder whether there are some pros and cons for fundraisers referring to themselves more ambiguously and drawing attention to the cause um on the one hand if you present yourself as a fundraiser you might save time when speaking with a new supporter they may instantly understand that they can speak to you about making donations for example but on the other hand might you spook them and scare them off before you have time to get them into learning about how they can support your cause? When I'm having this conversation, I sort of compare the the 28-year-old development director. In my book, I, I, I describe two development directors, um, fundraisers, in the back of the book. Um, it's called A Tale of Two Ryans, is the particular chapter. And... Um, and neither one of them are 30 years old. And I and everywhere I go, I tend to meet these Ryans. And um, one of them is working for a large Ivy League institution here in the U.S. The other one's working for another charitable organization over near Chicago. Um, but here they are making close to six-figure salaries, doing major gift work, finding a lot of meaning and purpose in this type of work. And they've never... They've never had to hesitate to introduce themselves to their donors or to their prospective donors um, what it is they do. Um, the, the, and so 
and and from the very beginning, both of them relatively, I mean, almost immediately after college, went into this type of work. Um, and so they didn't come through the back door. They didn't, they, they really weren't, you know, neither of them sort of got an undergraduate degree or master's degree in fundraising per se. But they, they were relatively prepared with both their, you know, their, their, the academic training that they got. Um, and so they haven't had to sort of hobble together um, the credentials to do what they do. They're, they're, they were relatively prepared. But they also, in both of their positions, they both, Sam, were pushed. Either they pushed themselves or their jobs pushed them beyond what I call this arm's length fundraising, which is to say... Um, they they very quickly moved to much more major gift work, much more donor facing work. So they were interacting early in their fundraising careers. They discovered that the most meaningful gifts and the most you know meaningful experiences in fundraising for both sides of that gift tend to be those donor facing you know where you're actually sitting across the lunch table, um, and um, and so they they just don't. They don't struggle with that identity, um, and um, and so now, if you if you if you if you sort of carry my analogy of sort of human development, and stretching analogies can get you in trouble, but after we sort of get past our adolescence and we get past the identity crisis, we we get into that mode where it's really about the relationships. And so, if you think about a young person who's in their, you know, in college, early twenties. They tend to have a crisis of relationships. It's how they relate to other people in the world, and that's where I think we are, um, <clears throat> is we're struggling to sort of know how we relate to our peers, how we relate to our supervisors, um, how we relate to our donors. And um, and again, this this whole notion of arm's length fundraising, I think, keeps us at an arm's when, when you try to maintain an arm's length, when you're very deliberate about not getting close and not having close proximity with someone, you can, you did you tend to create a very dysfunctional relationship, especially if the expectation is going to constantly go up. And so um, every time, you know, Sam, if you were my donor, then you and I didn't improve upon that relationship in some meaningful way every time I asked you for more money. But I just kept sort of asking and asking and sort of expecting and expecting and even you know, always, and generally expecting that amount of support for you to give me get to go up. That's a that's a rather dysfunctional relationship. I've spoken a lot about um, an analogy of my uh, my friend Michael, and if I call him every time I call him, I ask him for money then uh, he's my friend now, but he might not be my friend for very long. I wonder if this is a good analogy of how we should think about our donors as well, developing a reciprocal relationship, giving them something in return for their support and not constantly asking for more support. Well, I mean, if you think about it in terms of if you think about it in terms of a profession, right? So if we, if some of us don't even some of the, some of us uh, don't haven't even owned up to the idea that fundraising is a profession, but I, sure. you know, for someone like myself who is advocating for the idea the idea that we are a professional sort of domain of work, um, professions have their um, think about your relationship with your doctor, with an attorney, with your minister. 
Um, think about any sort of relationship that you have with another, with a professional. Um, there are messy parts of those relationships that are uncomfortable to talk about sometimes. Um, certainly things that we wouldn't talk about. You know, I wouldn't be sitting here um, having my, my doctor with us in this conversation and talking about some of the more intimate details of my health, for example. Um, but that doesn't diminish his, his or her role as a doctor or if it was an attorney, similarly. Um, and so what I think we've, I, I, this is again, what I don't think that the fundraising professionals got, profession has gotten comfortable with is that we can have conversations about people's money and their wealth and the way that they give and all those sorts of things. We haven't developed a confidence to have conversations about that sort of stuff. And so historically, we've just, again, we keep it at an arm's length. So we almost like pretend like money isn't happening, like the exchange isn't happening. Sure. But there is an exchange and it is happening and other relationships of other sorts have other types of exchanges. And that's a perfectly normal part of that relationship. Um, but pretending like, pretend, and, and money too. We have, uh, you know, I, I don't think a lot of us have really wrestled through what, what it is money really is. Money is merely a reflection of our values. And so money is just sort of a symbol of what it is that's important to us. And, um, and so we've never sort of dealt with the psychology of money. We, we tended to look at it like a, just like an, you know, an economic tool that allows us to buy and buy and sell shit. And that's not really what's going on. There's more there. Sure. Um, there's more going on there. And I think we need to own up to that. And, and I think, I genuinely think that younger people are coming into the field, sort of getting their heads wrapped around this more quickly. That's what I say in the book. I say, you know, does the fundraising profession recognize that young people are coming into this field of work with a higher, with a heightened level of confidence and knowing more about what it is we're really doing than somebody who's ten or twenty years into the work, wow. and so they're already they're they're sort of already um, psychologically and um, you know, they're already sort of beyond some of those hangups that I think those of us who are older um, are, are wrestling with. <laughs> about arm's length fundraising is this as a result of the pressure on fundraisers do you think to develop high volumes of donors rather than focusing their time on fewer relationships with donors right so all that new acquisition work it, it, there's just so many different layers to this so um i, I must wish i had a if we were in a if we were in a room together i could i could doodle this on a wall for you but um so if you think about where fundraising is now, sort of in in the bigger context of where the world is, um, and if you think about mass marketing, so mass marketing, <clears throat> what I generally refer to as lane one, um, we also oftentimes refer to it also as, as just simply new donor acquisition. New, do, no, new donor acquisition is always based on volume and efficiency. That's it's always the metric. Um, how can you acquire the new donor at the lowest cost, and you generally want to acquire as many as possible, um, and that's what the and that's no different than the private sector. I mean, any any business model wants to acquire its first customer or its new customer at the at the highest volume and the lowest cost, but every business also knows that at some point that customer has to sort of transition beyond that, and what and and um, and the other thing we know about 
mass marketing in whatever form it happens to be, we also know that mass marketing is always evolving. So whatever worked in the mass market, say 20 years ago, doesn't tend to be the same thing that's working now. And we can't expect the same thing to work 20 years from now. That's just a reality of what mass marketing is um, because it's always trying to attract the new customer and it's always trying to do it in a, in a highly efficient way. Um, and so I don't know that we've wrestled with, and, and, and this oftentimes sort of brings, brings my conversations to direct mail. I'm not a, I'm not a crit critic of direct mail. I'm just saying that direct mail has worked. It has, has historically worked, but it's not always going to work. Um, what is problematic for people who have worked in direct response, direct mail, you know, um, is that their professional identities as fundraisers isn't in being a fundraiser, but it's being a direct response professional, if you will. It's, it's that their, it's their identity is sort of really wrapped up in that particular methodology. Well, if you recognize that direct mail or whatever method of fundraising you're using at the time is going to constantly be evolving, and that eventually, once you get past those first few initial gifts, that donor is going to expect a, a, a more meaningful relationship. You can't get stuck in that particular channel. And I have, and anyone that I talk to that hears my critique, generally very quickly puts their, puts their fist up and says, well, it works. Well, of course it works. But there's a lot of things that have historically worked but as our world changes, other things begin to work a little better. And, and, and when it comes to that new donor acquisition strategy, we're always going to use whatever, whatever is cheap and whatever gets the job done quickly. And so, so when you sort of, you know, 20 years ago, we could not have, 20 years ago, we didn't know that social media and the internet and all of those sorts of tools were going to become so dominant in our culture today. Um, the people who are, you know, putting up their fist in the direct mail space when they hear a critique like mine are those people are not going to be the people 20 years from now. It's going to be the people who who are, you know, in the, in the Internet space and the social media space. They're going to be putting up their fists and saying, oh, but it works. Well, of course it works. Um, it has worked, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily always going to work. And when you recognize that fundraising it, it eventually becomes a relationship, meaning Eventually, you have to go with what always works, and that is a, a more meaningful relationship. Um, so at some point, it's like your friend you're describing. You could borrow money, you know, at an arm's length for a time, for a season. But eventually, you're going to have to sit down and have real conversations with this fella if you expect to keep. Um, he might continue to continue to loan to you, um, but, but he's going to have a heightened level of expectation um, as you... Uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to buy him some coffee and probably lunch every once in a while. <laughs> I'll have to invite him over for dinner, I think. Um, you mentioned earlier, Jason, the culture of metrics. I think you were talking about this on the uh, IOF blog, and I, this is what I read, this is how I found out about you. And, and you talk about KPIs, which certainly resonated with me. Um, you were talking about mastering our craft as fundraisers, and I think this is probably in underused term, certainly here in the UK, would you explain to our listeners the type of metrics that you're talking about? Yeah, so again, if you if you if you've 
if anyone who's listening has tried to follow this sort of my choppy observation, I, I recognize that everything isn't necessarily always terribly coherent. I've, I've only had two cups of coffee this morning. Um, but um, if you take if you take everything that I've said thus far, and you also think about the workplace, so the workplace right now is sort of under siege right now, and people are saying that the traditional way that we've worked, the, t- the traditional ways that we've held each other accountable. Um, <clears throat> The traditional ways that we've interacted, we a lot of us are being extremely successful working remotely. We don't always necessarily have to all convene in an office space every day. Um, so everything that has worked in the office, in the workplace, is now being sort of questioned. Um, so if you sort of combine all of those things, if you combine the, the workplace adaptation that's expected of us today and you combine that with fundraising's messy adolescence and the constant evolution of say new donor acquisition you can see where this gets pretty messy and complex but to get to your question um human uh, when it comes to d- developing people in the work when it comes to developing any sort of skill or talent you're better off having people focus on, and this is this is sort of the science behind expertise. So there's a lot of information that we didn't have 20 and 30 years ago that we know now. It's coming out of the what's called the science of expertise. And if you can get if you can get people who want to sort of achieve a heightened level of performance to focus on mastery rather mastery goals, for example, rather than performance goals, which is to say that have them compete with themselves rather than have them compete with other people. So um, a culture of metrics, which is oftentimes what I'm hearing. So if I'm if I wasn't on the phone with you today, I'd be talking to oftentimes I'm talking to a, a development officer at a large high, you know. Uh, a university or something, and he or she is saying to me that the culture of metrics is just is is creating a toxic environment. Um, metrics, this culture of metrics, is a very performance based. Compare yourselves to what other people in the institution are doing, or compare yourself to what the university down the street is doing. Um, it makes for a very toxic sort of workplace culture. It's also rooted in in more of our industrial era. Um, but it's not a human focused. It's it's not recognizing that those of us who want to achieve extraordinary levels of performance generally just have to compete with ourselves, which is what mastery is, um, mastering our craft. And so all the metrics, all the all the what I would consider healthy metrics that I'm encouraging organization to use, um, KP, KPIs are reflect a commitment to competing with ourselves. Um, so, for instance, one of the very simple metrics, uh, just to give you a, sort of a simple applic- pra- a practical application or practical example, um, um, and this is in the this is in the space of what's called deliberate practice. So, deliberate practice, again, coming under this umbrella of um, of the science of expertise, deliberate practice looks at very micro skills, little precise steps in your work. And 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 um, and says how can you improve upon that? And so one of my deliberate practices that I do with all my development officers that I'm coaching is I want all of their meetings scheduled no 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 sooner than two weeks out. Um, it seems like you know that that you know that seem might seem like a sort of a a silly you know expectation, but if you think about it, if you think about what scheduling all of your meetings two weeks out sort of. Um, requires of the development officer requires of the person on the other end of the scheduling process the the donor themselves um it 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 requires a certain level of attention and deliberateness 
um, anyone who's been in a major gifts role um, who has to travel the country or travel the world knows that you have to schedule further out. Um, but you also see that competing with yourself to keep that schedule two weeks out all the time isn't competing with your colleagues. It's not competing with the university down the street. It's competing with yourself. It's competing, you know. And so you're you're sort of checking off that um, that goal every every week with your boss. Yes, I've I've scheduled all of my meetings two weeks out. Um, another another practice I try to get my development officers to pay attention to is their ability to sort of move between meetings very deliberately paying attention to meetings that are initial meetings and what I call subsequent meetings. So when you're meeting with a donor, there's really only two types. There's a, there's that, there's the first meeting. It's kind of like the first time you and I would sit down at the diner and have lunch and every subsequent meeting and tracking, tracking sort of this balance, this, uh, this ratio between how many, and let's say when I was in, when I was in Washington, I was expected to do 12 to 15 meetings a month. And so I'm trying to get the development officer to consistently do sort of a one-to-one -one ratio of initial to subsequent meetings. And what you're doing there, you're not, you're not guaranteeing that the money's coming in, but what you're doing is, is you're sort of ensuring that you're learning how to engage with the donor for the first time and you're learning how to continue to engage with the donor subsequently. Yeah. Um, and, and as you keep that balance or as that balance, as that balance leans to one way or the other. So say for instance, if you're, if you're, if your ratio was heavier on the initial gift side, you and your boss could sort of look at that and analyze that and say, okay, what is that about myself and my pattern of work? That, that 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 I'm leaning towards the initial meetings or if, if it's the other way around if my meetings tend to lean towards um, more subsequent meetings which is to say that I'm always meeting with people I always know mm -hmm. that tells you a little bit that gives you some insight into what's going on mm -hmm. um, the other thing that is very characteristic of most of our sector right now where I where I think we have a lot of challenge is that it's the bosses. It's not so much the fund, the fundraisers that don't know how to sort of self-manage, but it's actually their bosses, their boards and their bosses who don't know how to evaluate what it is these people are doing. Um, and so this scorecard becomes a tool to train up the boss based on inputs, based on variables that are actually within the development officer's control. So if you think about mo if you think about the way that most development officers are evaluated they're evaluated on the amount of income that, the, that they're generating that's not really a variable that's in their control at all they can they can um, they can control who they're meeting with they can control how they're meeting with them and they can control what those meetings look like but ultimately at the end of the day how much that donor whether or not that donor writes a check and for how much is really in the control of the donor and so I want fundraisers to be very focused on the variables that they're in control of. And so if we were looking at my my KPI card, Sam, you would notice that there's no there's no monetary number on there because the monetary numbers are not within the fundraiser's control. Um, I only want them being evaluated on metrics that they can control. And so when somebody says, I work in a toxic environment, one of the first things I generally hear is they're being evaluated based on metrics that are completely outside their, um, their control.
presumably uh, that has a knock-on effect with uh, job satisfaction and attrition rates within fundraising teams, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, is, is just, just, just like everything that you've been hearing me say, this messy adolescence that we sort of find ourselves trying to get through. The bosses, I think the boss, I think the, I think the supervising role is is far more problematic right now than even the fundraisers. I think there's plenty of people on this planet who are willing to get out there and build meaningful relationships and set the expectations high for their donors, but but the, the, the but the supervisors have never sat down and been trained on how to. Um, you know, one of the things they'd be it'd be really great for some of them to do is go to some really good sales training um, in the sales space. Um, because a lot of this stuff's coming out of that same sort of, you know, you want high achieving individuals who want constructive feedback and all this sort of stuff, <clears throat> but you also want them to feel like they're in control. And so I want a supervisor, Sam, who, who sets the expectations for you, <clears throat> but is very thoughtful about what is it, what it is happening, what, what is happening. But he, if he or she, if your boss has never developed their own level of confidence with fundraising, they think they're a used car salesman. They're not going to be able to give you the, the constructive feedback that you want. If you're a young fundraiser who says, I'm really into this and this is a completely, this is a completely legitimate career path for me. But your boss is still stuck in this sort of, I don't want to introduce myself as a fundraiser sort of zone. Um, you're not going to enjoy working for them. Uh, can we use metrics in the same way that uh, Jonah Hill's character did in the movie Moneyball, which, for the sake of anyone who hasn't seen this film, is based on the story of the fortunes of the Oakland Athletics baseball team over in the States, a movie with Brad Pitt in it, and they're using metrics, their true story, uh, to identify undervalued talent and they went on to great success. Do you think that metrics can be used um, in developing successful fundraising uh, or fundraising teams? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm very familiar with the um, with Moneyball, and and what, and I'm a very great fan. I'm a big fan of baseball as well. My will be at a baseball, a local baseball game this evening. Um, and so, Sam, sort of on your point, I think. This is again one of those things that I don't think fundraising has gotten figured out. But 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 if if so one of the deliberate practices on my card, on my KPI card, is that of working within a defined list, an assigned list, which is no different than a major gifts officer having an assigned portfolio. But that word assigned is very important. I want to make sure that they're not that Sam, you're not arbitrarily sort of picking who you're gonna go meet with, but you and your board or your boss or whomever you sort of are accountable to are sitting down selecting these people. But Sam, I don't really care how much it, I don't care how much experience. I don't I don't need a talented fundraiser to develop fundraising talent. All I need is an individual with a certain level of social intelligence, you know, with a and and an emotional awareness. Um, if I gave you a list of 150 names, Think about this. If I gave you a list of 150 names of current donors, current donors to your organization, and I knew you were a socially capable individual who could get out there and say thank you and a couple other things, and and they were all current donors, which is to say they're not new donors, and I said, go out there, and the only thing you can do is say thank you and ask them why they give to the organization that they're giving to, right? Yeah. 
you'll basically learn fundraising in about six months, right? Yeah, yeah. That's essentially what Moneyball was about. What Moneyball was about was it was recognizing that we didn't need rock stars, but we just needed to recognize the very deliberate practices of sort of coordinating a team. Mm. And I think in fundraising, we've got these exaggerated ideas of what constitutes a fundraiser. Consequently, only those who can afford these top salaries can afford these people. But give me a 26 to 28 year old, hand him or her a list of current donors and tell them to go and, 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 and only sit across the lunch table with these people. Don't build arm's length relationships. Always say thank you and always have your have your conversations generally be structured around questions instead of assertions or statements. And I can guarantee you that person will raise more money. Um, the problem with that is, Sam, if you think about it, is that doesn't sound very predictable and it doesn't make the boss feel like they're in control. Um, it doesn't sound very characteristic of, um, you know, the industrial era when everything was predictable and it was under control. Well, that's not where we live today. Um, but I can put a person out there in the field and give them some simple, simple, but consistent sort of frameworks to sort of operate in and they'll be raising more money um we don't have enough supervisors out there right now who sort of trust that um that sort of truth when it comes to fundraising um fundraising is not that complicated we talked a minute ago about fundraising leadership how do we go about changing the landscape for better fundraising well it'll be so the two ryan's that i'm describing in my book i told you they're only i think i don't think neither one of them are 30 yet um but within 10 years they'll be the bosses right um that's the predicament that i think again anybody who's supervising develop i, I say this to older fundraisers all the time i say you're really at odds with people who are 10 and 20 years younger than you because they're far more confident in this space and they're going to they're going to get in and they're going to get their heads wrapped around how this really should work sooner than you will um and it's not an ageism sort of thing it's just because of where they landed in there at the particular point in in sort of fundraising's history um so these two ryan's they'll be supervisors in 10 years so i don't think that the problem that i'm pointing out and fundraising itself will have matured in 10 years a little bit more. And so I don't think this problem will be nearly as profound in 10 years as it is today. Um, you know, there's not a lot. I don't have much gray hair. So a lot of people aren't listening to me now. But in 10 years, I may be at the forefront of what is being said out there. And this won't mess. And people like me won't, you know, it, it won't be nearly as problematic. Jason Lewis, thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. Glad to be here. So there you go. A big thank you to Jason Lewis. Uh, he's a very busy man, and we're very grateful that he made the time to speak to Charity Chat. We hope to speak to Jason again at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but in the meantime, please do get in touch with us if you've got a positive or negative fundraising culture. What is it that's working? What is it that's not working? Please do get in touch with us through our website, charitychat.org.uk, and let us know. 
We're not here to bash bad fundraising, so we'll keep everything anonymous, but it might help our listeners to reflect on how they fundraise and may help us all avoid the pitfalls that might be leading to ineffective practices. So a big final thank you to Jason, one to you, dear listener, and another to all of our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axamits for beautiful website design, RR Yard Photography for the awesome pro bono images on our website. Check it out, charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it from me. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.